chapter 13. So our focus now in the book of 1 Samuel is on King Saul. He's the king. The people wanted a king. They, they wanted a king they could see, and God gave them the tallest, most handsome man in the land. He appears to have a heart for God. He appears to be godly. But we'll see tonight that things are not always as they appear because God knows the heart. We pick it up in chapter 13, verse 1. Israel has a king. They have their enemies that surround them. And we go forward with the story where the back part of chapter 12, God told him through Samuel, yeah, you've done wickedly, but you know what? If you do the right thing right now, God's for you. Don't hang your head. Don't be downcast. God's for you. If you do the right thing, today's the day to go forward. And that's where we left off. Chapter 13, verse 1 reads like this. So Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan, that would be his son, in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And now all Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had become an abomination to the Philistines and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, people as the sandwiches of the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash in the east of beth Evan. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. It's war. War has come to Israel. There was a status quo where the Philistines subjugated Israel and in a sense controlled Israel. They had their, their garrisons in the Israeli territories. They took tribute and all that kind of stuff. And as long as you submit to them, there's no problem. You pay them double taxes, whatever it is, there's no problem. But now with Jonathan taking the initiative and stepping out in faith, he, it's, a, it's a military endeavor and it's, it's war. He started war, started the conflict. Saul, the king, now his hand is forced. He blows the trumpet, gathers all Israel together. You can't go to war with just 3,000 elite troops. You need a major standing army. So he calls the mobilization, essentially conscription. He mobilizes all the men. Samuel told him, you'll have a king. You want a king? Well, he's going to make you go to war. He'll take your best men and make them go to war, and your best daughters, and they'll serve in his palace. This is the actions of a king. We've got a war, and there's, there's really no way to avoid it. Some people prefer... We've said this, some people prefer a known dysfunction that they can function in over an unknown step of faith to a better function. Let me say that again. Some people will live in a known dysfunction by which they know how to function in the dysfunction, opposed to taking a step of faith, taking risk to go to something more healthy, more right with the Lord, because it's unknown. Human beings will take known dysfunction and subjugation opposed to steps of faith for a greater thing that God has because one takes no effort at all. The other takes faith and courage in many cases. But remember, to do nothing is the biggest risk of all. And now, whether you want to or not, your world's changed. You can't just lay low in your village and not look at the Philistines when they go by. A saw sign of the trumpet, it's war. Like the Drums of August, like the, Drums of August the famous book by Barbara Tuchman, Pulitzer Prize winner. Once things went in motion with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, it's, it's war. 
and it's all going in motion. This action creates that action, that reaction, and it's war, much like we're seeing right now in our world. And that's what this was. These were the actions that created war. That's what we have happening here. And people are scared. They're hiding in the thickets and the caves. People are fleeing. And look, they're even leaving the country. They're crossing the river. They're, they're fleeing. They're refugees. This, this verse we just read has refugees. They're crossing over the Jordan River. They're like, there's going to be war, and we're getting out of here before the killing starts. Something I think we can all relate to, at least from observation, but not by experience, unless we come from another country. Now we pick it up in verse 7. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. And Saul went up to meet him and that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. So evidently, there was a conversation between Samuel and Saul, where Samuel the prophet, he is the voice of the Lord for all Israel at this time, he would have told, he told clearly from the text, we understand, he told Saul, wait till I come, I'll do the sacrifice, and then we'll go to war. There's always an order. You know, there's a right order. If you're going to war, you need really good weapons, or you need the Lord fully on your side, or ideally both. They didn't even have weapons. Saul sounds the trumpet, so he's got to have 100% the Lord on his side. Conventional war is not in his wheelhouse right now because he doesn't have the means to fight it. We'll see that in a moment. It, it has to be the Lord anyways. When we study the life of David, we'll see how he says, hey, Lord, should we do this and should we do that? He waits on the Lord. David waits on the Lord for confirmation from the Lord. Saul just sort of has the appearance of being righteous and right with God, but he, he's not. And the text makes that very clear. It says that he, from his own testimony, he says, I saw, I said, and I felt. <laughs> Let's just, now, there's nothing wrong with seeing, um, speaking, and feeling, right? Because we see with two eyes, we speak with one mouth, we have emotions, God's given us emotions, love, anger, jealousy, all the different things that we have. But it's really important in a life of faith that faith is the engine that's driving your train. And fact is connected to it. So, you're, 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 well, fact is here and then faith is there. This is the Bill Bright Campus Crusade model. So you have the fact of God's word. You have the faith attached to it. And then the feelings comes after faith. See, whenever we supplant faith with feelings, we can be led astray. Our faith has to be in the fact which is God's word, his promises, what he told us to do. Obviously, Samuel told Saul what to do, and he didn't do it. In fact, he's rebuked for not obeying the commandment of the Lord. So the clear instruction that he had, he didn't follow from the Lord, from the prophet. Instead, he saw, he spoke, and he felt. It's a warning to us 
to not let our eyes and mouth and feelings keep us from doing the right thing with the Lord, particularly when it's waiting on the Lord. Because things are not always the way they seem to be when we see things sometimes. And we often speak out of impulse and not filtering stuff. As the Bible says, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, and even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace, even a king. So he saw things, and he concluded things, and then he spoke things because he felt things. But if we're going to be led by the Lord, we're going to be led by the Lord and led by his word. And we have the fact of his word. We have faith in who he is and his promises, and we're going to obey him. Because when you come to what you don't know, we fall back on what we do know. And it's always going to be the right thing to obey God's word. See, we never get in trouble in our personal lives when our faith is in the word of God. But when we put our faith in our emotions and our feelings and what we see and think and feel or speak, that's where we can get into trouble. So it's a reminder to us, like, because Saul does not, this text, you could read it and just think like, wow, like, think about this. If you have a job and you've got a good boss, a reasonable boss. That boss, that woman, that man, they're going to give you a little bit of room as you're figuring out your job and how you, things work out. Like, we don't have it all figured out. And when you hire people, you hire them on their giddy-up and their potential, and, you know, you screen them, whatever, and, and, and you want them to be successful. Rarely do you just fire someone right away. Saul got fired right here. The Lord fired him. You're fired. Some people never get it, and they use the Lord's name even when they're not getting it. They'll bring the Lord into their rebellion, their disobedience, their self-deception, and they'll bring the Lord into it. And they'll think the Lord's in it. I mean, look at all the plethora of false teachers in pulpits in America right now who don't believe Jesus is the Christ, don't believe he's the only way, and don't believe there's right and wrong and absolutes. And yet they'll talk about the Lord. They'll, they'll mention Jesus. This is actually a very scary text for me, and it should be for believers, because it shows how easily we can deceive ourselves with our eyes, our words, and our feelings when we don't choose to trust in the sureness of his word and obey what he's called us to obey. And to wait on the Lord when he tells us to wait on the Lord. Just because the prophet Samuel doesn't show up when he said he's going to, doesn't mean he's not going to, nor does it mean that you're now going to replace the prophet in his place. That's a problem with kings. They think they can do everything. Uriah did the same thing when he ran into the temple to make offerings as, as a priest. And what did he get? He got struck down with leprosy. He was a good king for like 40 years. And suddenly he decides, I'm the king. I can do what I want. I can go in the Holy of Holies and do like the priests do because I'm the king. No, you can't. And he ended his life in exile as a leper. We have to be careful. There's so many applications here, but we have to be careful from our place of positions of authority and power that we don't deceive ourselves into thinking we're called to do something that we're not. We're always going to be better off Faith in the facts of what God has clearly shown us to do, waiting on the Lord, and let him send the prophet. And if the prophet's late, that's okay. Because as Jesus, we know with Jesus, he's always right on time. The Lord is never late. And everything's a test. And now we look at this text, we have to determine this was a text. 
a test in this text, and we have to know for sure Saul failed it. He failed this test because he got fired by Jehovah. Yahweh fired him. He rejected him. And Samuel the prophet said, well, we pick it up in verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be the commander over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal to Gilbeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Man, what a sad picture this is. So the, Samuel just says, hey... I got the word from the boss. You're fired. This was your test. And if you had passed it, your, your family, your kingdom would have been established forever. But you failed it. This is so powerful, WG. Stay with me. Because he's only been a king for a couple years. Your biggest test may come early on. Or it may come later on. You just need to know when you're being tested that you're being tested. And we want to make sure we pass that test. Life is filled with tests for the follower of Jesus Christ. And obeying the Lord and obeying his word is going to always be the key to passing any test. Not in outward sense. Because think about this. Saul looked religious. He called the six, you know, the men together. He's like, hey, we're going to do this. They're coming. They're coming. But I do believe he was moved by fear because the people were in distress. It says the people were distressed. And then it says that they were trembling. And so, you know, fear is contagious. When everyone starts to get afraid, they all start freaking out and they're all scaring each other. You know, when Dr. Doom gets on TV, he terrifies everybody, we're all afraid. Well, I'm not, maybe you are, but you shouldn't be. But fear feeds on fear, and fear sells, and it's contagious. And that's why we're told to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. Because while our faith is in God and his promises, his person, his work, and what he's going to do, we're not going to be moved by the fear of men that are fear mongers. Either Jesus on the throne or men who are tyrants and women who are tyrants are on the throne. And they'll strike fear in you. And just because they're catching their breath right now, I don't think they're not reloading to strike fear in you again. Our faith is in Jesus, and don't let these things move us. Don't let godless men and women invoke fear on you that moves you from a place of confidence in the Lord for who he is, and he's got your life. There's a trillion galaxies out there, and Jesus has been in control from the very beginning, as Jeff was even praying earlier during worship, implied. Saul saw Fear. Saul spoke fear. Saul felt fear. And Saul disobeyed the Lord in unbelief. And it cost him his job as king of Israel. That's something to think about, body of Christ, 2022. And he was religious. Oh, what I'm doing is religious. As he's moved by fear, he's justifying it. Oh, I did the offering. I did it because the Lord. I'm so tired of people quoting the Lord when they're living in fear. Fear of men. Fear of nonsense. Let us quote the Lord living in faith. 
in the confidence of who he is, his promises, and what he's done. We'll never go wrong with faith. And, you know, faith is contagious, too. If, if we're going to see that in the next chapter, faith is contagious. Fear is contagious. Reject contagion fear of men. And don't trust what your eyes see or what your mouth speaks or what your emotions feel. Make those things subject to Jesus Christ on the throne, his word enthroned over every aspect of your life and every decision of your life. Test all things, hold fast that which is good. When you come what you don't know, you fall back on what you do know. And we'll always be healthy in the Lord if that's our perspective. Saul bought the fear, he sold the fear, and he got fired by the king who demands us and calls us to live by faith. Verse 16. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people presented with them, remaining in Gibeah and Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Mishmah. So there's 600 men with Saul and Jonathan all. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned on the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shul. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon. And another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now, there were no blacksmith. Uh, in, the, in the land. There was no found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. Of course, if you subjugate people, you disarm them. That's, that's always, there's nothing new under the sun. It's what you do. You disarm the people. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattox, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattox, the forks, and the axes, and and to set the points on the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Well, this totally looks like a really big mismatch. And Saul sounded the trumpet. He didn't trust in the Lord. He's got an army that has no weapons. This is what we have here. This is the background to the story. They were not as advanced on their ironwork and their weaponry around 1100 BC as the surrounding Philistine, the coastal tribes, as the Jews were not as much as them. And they had, had no weapons, but they're going to go to war. But God fights our battles, and that's what the people need to know, even if Saul doesn't know it. So this is the background as we go to chapter 14. Saul has been rejected, but he's still the king. It's only a matter of time. Another's going to replace him. That was spoken of. That's going to be David. It's only a matter of time. And yet there's Jonathan, his son, who had the courage in the first place, verse 3 of chapter 13, to attack the garrison and get out of a, a known dysfunction to get moving toward a healthier function of faith. Saul has the outward appearance of this king, appearing righteous to the people. The Lord compelled me. I, I, I made supplication to the Lord. I felt compelled to do a burnt offering. Ah, it's so easy to look religious but be so far from God. And that takes us to chapter 14. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with them were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing the ephod. 
but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one rock was Bozes, and the other was Sena. The front of one faced northward opposite Mishmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. So even as fear is contagious, so is faith. Fear, though, fear is more contagious to a multitude. It's easy to terrify a multitude and strike fear in them. Faith is contagious, but it tends to be more in a minority. Just like how Jesus said, wide and broad is a path that leads to destruction, and many go thereby, but narrow is a gate that leads to life, and few enter thereby. And since we enter by faith, we can just put logic together that few people are willing to live by faith. Few people are willing to take steps of faith and go forward with the Lord. But we're told that we're saved by faith, we live by faith, and we walk by faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So Jonathan is a great example in the Old Testament sense of taking steps of faith. Again, in the previous chapter, he, he struck the garrison... And he went for it, and now it seems like there, maybe there's a stalemate, like wars do that, right? You get stalemates. If you study the Vietnam War, this, that, this, then Tet, then this. I mean, he just, you study World War I, it was like basically a three-and-a-half-year stalemate until the U.S. forces came in to Bellawood and all those other places. So you get stalemates. So there's a stalemate. And yet again, here's Jonathan. So for the second chapter in a row, Jonathan is stepping up, and taking the initiative to try and break the yoke, the foreign yoke, over God's people in their promised land. Again, trying to break the foreign yoke over them, God's people in their promised land. Jonathan often gets overshadowed because he's the son of Saul, and he often gets overshadowed because he was the best friend of David. When you go through Samuel, it's easy to ignore Jonathan and almost miss him but we don't want to miss Jonathan. So here he is. He steps out in faith, but his armor bearer is someone we don't really talk about much. He's not identified by name, but we're just told that it's his armor bearer. It's his right-hand man. That right-hand man, that person you can trust who's always going to be there in the two spot. That's who the armor bearer was. So Jonathan has this vision like, hey, let's, let's do this. And he says, come, let us go over, verse 6, to the garrison. And it may be. It may be. It's not, we don't know for sure what the mind of the Lord is, but it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Isn't that true? Let's think about that for a minute. Is the Lord short? Does he, does he save, have to save by many or can he save by few? Right? Saved by many or saved by few. God plus one is everything. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro over the face of the earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. It just takes one person. Esther went in and 
bowed the knee before the king and saved her people. Now, a lot of people are praying for her, but she had to go in and face that alone, right? That's one of the greatest acts of courage in the history of human record is Esther going before the king to save her people. We need to be reminded that that God does do great things, and more often than not, he does it through a minority of people. That way he gets the glory and he gets the credit. So whatever we're facing, whatever we're challenged by, whatever we might need to encounter or deal with or confront, our confidence needs to always be in the Lord and his ability to bring to pass what he wants to do according to his goodness and his calling and his working and his plans on our life as opposed to strength in numbers. When we were going to Virginia Beach in 1990 to start Calvary Chapel Hampton Roads, I was very nervous to do this. I was on staff at Calvary Vista with Brian Broderson. I oversaw the drug and alcohol ministry. And we had a ministry team of about 30 people. And we had some really special people that served in that ministry. And of course, when someone's going out, it's exciting. So people want to go out with them like, hey, we're going to go plant a church. You know, like when we planted Orange County Christian Fellowship, a number of people from this church went out with Brian Jameson to plant that church and stayed there. When Hector went out to start Long Beach Vision Church, Long Beach, a number of people from this church went out to plant it with them. It's very common. Like, you, you're excited, you know, you, you, and, and, you know, again, faith is contagious. So when you go for it, sometimes people, they're excited to be a part of that. There's something adventurous about going for that. Well, we're going to move 2,800 miles from Vista, California to Virginia Beach. That's 2,800 miles, and that's a big change. That's three time zones. And I had a lot of faith when it was 10 months out, but when it was like three months out, I began to have a lot of fear. You know, like, you, you're like, wow, is the Lord really in this? Like, uh, oh, boy, this is a big step of faith. I'm doing everything. And, and there's always people that come and say, like, are you sure? Like, how would God call you to do that? Like, and y- your faith will be tested. That's why we say whenever you go anywhere, you need to know that you know that you know that God is in it. You have to know in your own heart that God's led you that way because you're going to get there and you're going to question whether or not right away if you obey the Lord. So you need to know when you go in the mission field, you step out in ministry, you make four-year commitments. You're two weeks into a four-year commitment. You might realize like, oh, but you need to know that you know. And so that way you don't waffle. When guys used to call Pastor Chuck, who went out to start churches, they'd be all discouraged after six months, a year, 18 months. He'd always tell them two years. He wouldn't take anyone back or let them, he'd really encourage them to see it through for two years. It takes a certain kind of faith to just go out and go for it. So I had this great idea that planning a church in Virginia Beach would be easier if we had about 20 people from California with us. Right? You got your children's ministry people, your assistant pastor, your worship leader, and, you know, first service, there's at least 15 people out there. Because your worst fear is to start a church and there's no one out there. But in going to Virginia, I, I recruited some of these guys. Like, let's all go to Virginia and spy out the land. Well, Skip Heisig was back here at the same time from Calvary, Albuquerque. And he was on the 700 Club. So we had this whole connection where we watched him on TV. And then we were there. And, and we were going to do it. And I was like, okay, I can do this. I got all these guys. We can do this. And then I got back to California. And the Lord said, none of them are going with you. None of them. It was something that Jennifer and I were called to do, that people that would help us would be there. People like Cassandra Dean, Kristen Cassandra Dean, just God, God had our black worship leader, black man as a worship leader for us, waiting for us, because he knew how important it was to have an integrated uh, interracial church in Virginia Beach, things I'm not even aware of, right? 
You see what I'm saying? Like, God, God, God's way ahead of us. But we went with Hannah at nine months old, and that our dog stitches. We drove across country, and we did it. The Lord is able to deliver with fewer minis. What limits him? Let's see what the Lord will do. Pastor Chuck's book, Memoir of Grace, is, is let's take a step of faith. Let's see what the Lord will do. Venture in Faith was the video that came out in the 90s of the Calvary Chapel movement. Let's see what the Lord will do. This story of Jonathan reminds us, let's, let's be willing to do new things, not because everyone else is doing it, but because God's calling us to do it, and it's on our heart to do it. Let's just see what the Lord will do. Let's, let's do it. This is the history of the church, and this is the history of people like Peter getting out of the boat and looking at Jesus. Jonathan here saying, let's do this. It's like, it's like Peter getting out of the boat. It's getting out of his comfort zone and walking on water. But we've got to be looking unto Jesus. Now, of course, his is military. It's combat. It's war. It's, it's different in that sense. But we know that it's always a shadow of things to come. The fullness is Christ. So what Jonathan is doing here is he's showing us, along with his armor bearer, to, to be willing to take steps of faith. Like, Lord, what, what, what if the Lord is in this? Let's, let's do this. And having done this with my wife a number of times, going to Virginia, then going to Burlington, Vermont, Like Gideon, remember when we studied Gideon, he needed a sign, the ground's wet, the fleece is dry, the, the fleece is wet, the ground's dry. Our sign was to sell our house in Virginia Beach in 1995 in a really bad market, in an overglutted housing market. I know it's hard to imagine, but it was overglutted. And it would be nearly impossible for us to sell our house in Virginia Beach. And when we sell this house, we'll know that's the Lord to go to Vermont. The house sold at full price. And we went to Vermont. And it wasn't what I thought it would be, but it was what God called it to be. And ironically, the Calvary Chapel we started in Vermont still exists to this day. The one in Virginia Beach doesn't. The people still exist in different churches that we have friends that pastor them even, but that church doesn't exist anymore. But the one in Vermont does. (laughs) You just never know. So I would say to us, I think it's important that every one of us in this room, if we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and we're looking to Jesus, that we can wake up on any morning on March 23rd, tomorrow morning on Wednesday, and say, nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or few. Let's go for it. Let's take a step of faith. Let's get out of our comfort zone. Let's take some risk with the Lord, because that's how the just live. The just shall live by faith. Behold, the proudest soul is up. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. In the book of Habakkuk, God said, see those proud Babylonians that conquer everybody? That's not you. You live by faith. Even if you lose everything, you're still praising me, and you live by faith. And that's how the book of Habakkuk ends. We need to be women of faith, men of faith, with our eyes on Jesus, and, and an active faith. Our faith, we need to have the vision, and we need to act on the vision. We need to put energy to our faith. We need to put combustion to our faith. Energy to our faith. We need combustion. Because faith without works is, say it. Jeff had you earlier doing stuff, huh? Faith without works is, it's dead. Faith is the concept of something God puts on your heart to do. And he quickens you. But if you do nothing, it's a dead faith. Like the body without the spirit is dead. And I've seen more bodies than I want to in the human experience that are without the spirit. I've seen plenty of dead bodies, including my mom. I saw her body with the spirit and then her body without the spirit. 
So when we're told faith that's inactive is dead, it's dead. How many people, and even some of us in this room, has God put things on our heart for steps of faith that we talk ourselves out of and we kill the vision and we kill the idea that God gave us because we're unwilling to get out of our comfort zone and combustion, put energy in motion to do it. Because that's what faith is. Faith is action upon the vision of God leading. And at some point, the thought crossed Jonathan's mind, we can whoop these Philistines. Because God is on our side, and we can do this. And he turned to his right-hand man, and as iron sharpens iron, and faith, faith is contagious for a few. He says, what do you think? He's like, I'm all in. We got this. Jehovah plus us is victory. And that's, that's faith. That's the faith we want to have in 2022. I have to tell you today, for the first time in over a year, I thought, I could see going back to Russia. I don't know how, but for the first time in over a year, when the U.S. Council would tell you, don't go, I can see it. Not how it happened, but suddenly, it's kind of like when I tell you, when you can do something, like, I don't want to do it, but then tell you, you can't do it, like singing in the church. You come here sometimes, you don't sing, like, I don't feel like singing. Then the governor says, you can't sing in church. Like, the governor, no one tells me I can't sing in church. I'm going to sing in church, right? So it's like, oh, you have a choice to go to Russia. I'm not feeling it. Well, now you don't have a choice. Well, now I want to go. That's what the Lord does sometimes. He'll test us. Got to have people like Jonathan as armor bearer. Here I am. And, and again, this is the main application for tonight, but where the armor bearer says, hey, do all this in your heart. When you're, the people that with you trust your judgment so much, like, hey, the vast majority of decisions are really good and they're really spiritual. So do it. Let's do it. Do what's in your heart. When your spouse can say to you, do what's in your heart, you, you make good decisions. Now, that's not always the case, right? We understand. We're not putting that down. We're just saying when they can say that, that's good. Or when at work or in a partnership or in a business, when you're saying, hey, let's do this with the Lord. In ministry, when you build people's trust and like, yeah, we trust you. Let's do it. The vast, majority of, the vast majority of your decisions are really good. If Tom Brady in the huddle says to you, hey, this is what we're going to do right now, you're like, yeah, let's do it. Can I win Super Bowls? Right? Like, so when, when you have, live a life of faith, and it's a contagious faith, then when you inspire other people, they trust your faith because you have a history of it. Think about Pastor Chuck and all that he ever did in the last 30 years of his life. How many things have Pastor Chuck, God did with Pastor Chuck, buying Green Valley, buying Murrieta, all these different things. Vita, who would even know eight years after he's in eternity, the Vita Bible College, no longer a Bible college, is a haven for refugees from Ukraine. But someone took a step of faith a long time ago while working at Safeway in Tucson before they ever took a step of faith to buy a large property in a foreign country that the body of Christ still benefits from this day. Take steps of faith and inspire other people to take steps of faith. And people that you trust in faith, encourage them in their steps of faith and build them up. Iron sharpens iron. We want to be people of faith, people that take risk. And we want to surround ourselves, by the way, with people that think the same way. I don't want to surround myself with people who are Debbie Downers, and neither do you. I don't have time for it. I'm willing to, I want to surround myself with people who would tell me what I don't want to hear because I need to hear it. That's different. Faithful are, the friends, faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. I need people to tell me what I don't want to hear. But that's not the same as Debbie Downer. Debbie Downer, Donald Downer, 
The, the glass is always half empty and is never going to be full. They say Jesus is Lord, but the, to them, the glass can never be made full. I don't have time for people like that. You're outside the walls of Jerusalem. I don't have time for it. Because we got places to go, people to see, things to do in Jesus' name from here to eternity, and then we're in eternity. If you want to take steps of faith, let's take them together. I'll encourage you in yours, you encourage me in mine. Amen? Surround yourself with people of faith. Be the person of faith that you surround others in their journey of faith. And, and we're the people that are going to reign in eternity because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And there's a lot of people playing church. That, I don't know what to say, but I don't want to play church, and neither do you. Verse 8. Then Jonathan said, very well, let's cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say thus to us, uh, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say to us, come up to us, then we'll go up, for the Lord has delivered them to our hands, and this will be a sign to us. So they give a little confirmation, like we talked about Gideon's uh, fleeces or our house in Virginia Beach selling before we moved to Vermont. That's okay. God meets us where we're at. He'll do that. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they're hidden. And then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan, his armor bearer, and said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. These are men of faith. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. They fell before Jonathan, and as he came after him, his armor bearer, and as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about an acre of land. So the armor bearer and Jonathan worked together to accomplish that. Verse 15, and there was a trembling in the camp in the field among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled. Remember the raiders that divided in three portions into the land? So the raiders also trembled. And the earthquake, so that it was a very great trembling something supernatural. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah, Benjamin, looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul was talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to beth Aven. So, again, the context is a military. It's, it's war. It's a battle. And Jonathan, his armor bearer, initiated. So they went from an unacceptable dysfunction to steps of faith. And now things are happening. The faith is in action. There's energies at work. The, the faith is moving. The, the, the yoke's being broken. And notice, God honors their faith because it says here in verse 15 that there was a trembling in the camp in the field among the people. So something came upon them. It's from the Lord. The garrison and the raiders also trembled. No matter how big an army is, the Lord can just make it come to nothing. I'm reading Isaiah right now, how he said he was going to do that with the Assyrians through the prophet Isaiah and then 
we read in the book of Isaiah, he did do it to the Assyrians. He struck down the entire Assyrian army when they besieged Jerusalem. It says also, so that there's a great, that the earthquake, so that was a very great trembling. God caused an earthquake and some type of spiritual trembling upon all the people. When God, outside of time, space, and matter, does things supernaturally to protect his people, advance his kingdom, and accomplish his will, it, we just, it's affirmation that he's got our back. It's always, it's never, it's, we're never left to our own. God is on the throne. He's supernatural. He's got our back. We're in his hands. And he's in the micro and he's in the macro. And we're not done until we're done. Serve the Lord faithfully. And when we're done, we're done. And until we're done, we're not done. And we're not to fear men. We're not to fear demons. We're not to fear anything. We're to be fearless. We're to be relentless and fearless in Jesus' name. Like Jonathan is armor bearer right here. We have good days. We have bad days. Some days we feel braver than others, but some days we feel very afraid by what we've gotten ourselves into. I had months like that in Vermont. What have I done? But in the end, the Lord honored it. He blessed my wife. He blessed us. And as Brian Jameson used to tell me, your best stories all come from the 14 months you lived in Vermont. <laughs> when you're cruising, you don't get too many good stories. When you're afflicted and you're living by faith and you're stretched, and that's, that's, when you get, that's when you get some good stories. I remember telling Pastor Hector years ago, because you say, well, you know, Joey's story, and Joey said this. I'm like, hey, quit telling my stories. Get out of here and go find your own. <laughs> we still laugh about it. Dude, dude go get your own story. It's like, like yeah, you got to, you know, get on now. Get on. Like, well, what about what? What about what? Just go. Go get some stories. Go live a life of faith. Come back and tell us what great things God did for you. So Pastor Chuck used to do to everybody at Big Calvary as well on staff. So God gave them the victory. He supernaturally affected it. And so now we have the, the wrap-up on that, that battle, and then, the, then we have the conclusion on the, on the wars of Saul. So here we read verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Curse is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come to the woods, there was honey dripping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, and the people with the oath. Therefore he stretched out the end of his rod that was in his hand, dipped it in a honeycomb, put his, hand, uh, put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Curse is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, my father's troubled the land. Look now, how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoils of the enemies which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Now, they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahajalon, so the people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil. They took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. You know, that's a big no-no in the book of Deuteronomy because life is in the blood. That's a different Bible study, but most of you know that. That's not good. Verse 33. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, You've dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. And then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. That was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Saul is amazing. So he puts everyone under an oath not to eat on the day they're in combat. 
until he has vengeance. I told you before, he's a full-blown narcissist. If you study narcissistic behavior, Saul fits the bill to a T. It's all about him. He has, he just, he, he, it's, just, it's, always, it's always about Saul. How he's perceived, how he feels, what he thinks. Saul, you never find Saul thinking about anyone but himself. From start to finish, he's completely self-absorbed and narcissistic. What? And he was the best-looking, tallest man in the land, so it just added to his whole concept of himself. But what, what gets me about Saul is always talking about the Lord, though. You know, there's people like that. You can't reason with them. They don't quote the Lord, and they talk about Jesus. They don't, they don't show Jesus. He stumbled the people by not letting them eat the food. So then they get stumbled into eating with the blood, and he says, you've dealt treacherously. So... He, he says, he puts it on them. And then he says, do not sin against the Lord by eating with his blood. So he's lecturing them on disobeying God's word when he himself, God fired the chapter before for not obeying what it was that God called him to do. We know people like that, right? We know people like that. It's so obvious that they're not obeying the Lord in the most obvious things, but they'll nitpick you in other things that they may even stumbled you in. And by the way, nothing's worse than an abusive husband who stumbles his wife. In 35 years of ministry, that is the worst. Because inevitably, they always blame the wife when they're unfaithful to the wife, but they're the ones that stumbled the wife. I can't tell you how many times I've seen I'm not saying all wives are perfect. I'm just saying I've seen a lot more than otherwise. Oh, the sons of Adam. Especially the ones that are kings. This guy... And then he builds an altar to the Lord. It's like all for show, isn't it? It's all for show. Look at me. I'm building an altar to the Lord. Look at me. I'm the king. What are you going to do? Just, he's doing his thing. Verse 36. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, what do you say to God like that? Do whatever seems good to you. You know, like you and your boss says something like, yeah, whatever you think. Right? What, you know, you're the boss. It's all about you. Do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them to the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. Because when you're playing games with God, he might just shut you out. There was no answer. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. Oh, and so now he's an expert in finding that secret sin. King Saul's the expert. He's the expert examiner, examiner to find secret sin. And see what sin this was today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do whatever seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people were escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die. And Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, like, shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished his great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair on his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. 
Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Isn't it easy not to like Saul? Like, isn't it easy not to like Saul? I'll be honest. Like, like you just, it's so easy not to like this guy. Ah, so the application is, don't be this guy. We wrap it up, verse 47. So Saul established his sovereignty over all Israel, and he fought against all of his enemies on every side, against Moab, against people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them, and he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hand of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshui, and Machishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The names of the firstborn, Morab. The name of the younger, Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. So that's his cousin. Kish was the father of Saul. Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he took him for himself. Well, that last verse, you can't say they weren't warned, right? Remember when Samuel warned the people, he's going to take, he's going to take your best men. And he's going to make them work for him at his wage and do all that stuff. I just leave you with one thought. Verse 52 says that there was fierce war at the Philistines all the days of Saul. This, these verses are like a summary of his life. And it's just, he's just, he's at war with everybody. Like, and I realize they're in a, a place of conflict, but I don't know, he's got, he's got like war with everybody. It's hard to feel sorry for Saul, so I don't, and we want to avoid being Saul. Jonathan obviously is our hero tonight. Jonathan was the man who took steps of faith, gave God a chance to show himself strong, and, and bring deliverance to the people. He, he did something that was against his father's vow, not even know, his, his father's command, not even knowing that it existed. Saul is religious, quoting the the Lord, building altars, and totally irrational in his concept of God and what he's doing. Jonathan is simply getting it done, stepping out in faith.